0: canva talking presentations record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere anytime start designing today at canva.com designed for work
1: you know when people die and the pictures at the funeral are sometimes younger like once they die they're ageless It's perfectly fine to have a picture of her at 20 or 30 or 40. I understood that of her before she passed, that that's how she saw herself and that's how she wanted to be seen.
2: From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 17 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with some of the world's most creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. And now some of those interviews appear in print in Debbie's brand new book, Why Design Matters, Conversations with the World's Most Creative People. It's coming out in February of this year. In anticipation of the book, we're releasing interviews from the archives this month. We thought it would be fun for listeners to hear not only some great interviews, but also to hear how the podcast has evolved over the years. So we've been releasing the oldest ones first and proceeding chronologically. In September of 2020, Debbie spoke with textile artist Bisa Butler about how making a quilted portrait of her grandmother led to an artistic breakthrough.
1: I think they could see it and I could feel it too. Like
0: I got it, I finally got it.
2: Bisa Butler, after the break.
0: I could say Bisa Butler is a fiber artist, and I wouldn't be wrong. Her work is made of quilted textiles. But that's kind of like saying that Jackson Pollock worked in paint. Bisa Butler does extraordinarily vibrant quilted portraits of African-Americans. Some are famous, like Frederick Douglass, but most are unnamed men and women who happen to have had a photograph taken before they were forgotten by history but Bisa Butler has brought them back to us in life-scale images that stick in the mind and claim our attention and respect. She joins me to talk about her work and her career. Bisa Butler, welcome to Design Matters.
1: Thank you so much, Debbie. I'm so happy to be here.
0: Bisa, is it true you were named as the Artist of the Month at your nursery school?
1: <laughs> yes, I was. I went to school in the 70s, so it was definitely like full on hippie time. The name of the nursery school was Sundance School, just to give you an idea of, wh- of what we got going here. <laughs> and, and I was artist of the month and I was so thrilled, but I had no concept of time And I thought that meant art, like the artist of the school, like artist emeritus forever. forever. And when the month changed, somebody else's name was up there and I was so hurt. I couldn't understand. Oh.
0: I understand you were allowed to draw guardian angels on the walls of your bedroom (laughs) when you were three, so that you wouldn't be afraid to sleep in your own bed. Yes. And you you also won a blue ribbon in the Plainfield Sidewalk Art Competition when you were four.
1: Yes, I did. Yes.
0: Was there ever a time in your history you can think (laughs) of when you weren't being creative?
1: I really can't. Like, as far back as I can remember, and I think that goes with most kids, though, right? They're drawing, coloring, and painting. I think the only difference is that I kept at it.
0: You were born and raised in New Jersey. You are the youngest of four siblings, and your mother's family is from Louisiana. Yes. Your father left Ghana in 1960 and came to the United States with a scholarship to study and a suitcase with one shirt, and one pair of pants. And he ultimately became a college president for nearly four decades. And you've said that you got your unwavering work ethic from him. In in what way?
1: Oh, my goodness. Well, my father would always drum that into our heads. No matter what you do, you have to be the best. If you're a street sweeper, you be the best street sweeper. And he told us so many stories about... Being a small boy in Ghana in the 1940s and what that was like to have to um, school kids used to sing All Hail to the Queen, talking about Queen Elizabeth, because Ghana wasn't a free country at the time. They were still colonized. So he just talked about what that was like and the struggles that he went through as a child. His father died of appendicitis when he was about 11 And um, he was at boarding school and he caught a bus home. He had heard, they told him, your father is ill. You need to go home. And it took him about, I think he said about 24 hours on the bus. And by the time he got home, the family was on their way back from the burial.
0: Oh, my God.
1: So somebody, after his father passed, the family split apart and his mother my grandmother um, couldn't afford to take care of the children. She could only keep the baby with her, and they were five. And two of his sisters were married to a, I think he was a 60-year-old man.
0: The same sisters were married to the same, two two different sisters were married to two the same man? Two sisters
1: to the same, and they were seven and eight, mind <sighs> you. They weren't adult women. Oh they my were God. little girls. And um, the family was so devastated financially after my grandfather's death that my father always had it in his mind like that that was never going to happen to his family he said he used to pray every night that he lived because he wanted to take care of his children and um, he's still alive now thank God and he's still advising me every day he looks at my Instagram like (laughs) he comments and um, he comes to all my exhibits and so I grew up knowing that it was kind of like that do or die, like, you must do well.
0: He must be so proud of you.
1: Yeah, he he is. He is. I mean, he definitely, he steered us, all of us, towards education because that was his way out of poverty and out of despair. And um, he tried to guide me into being an architect at, in my undergrad years, but it just was not working out at all. And I got a, a scholarship to Howard university and I showed up a school of architecture. And I remember this big project I did. They had us like, I don't know, design some sort of building. And I had this idea that I was going to use a black board with white pencil because I wanted to like flip the script. And I was trying to inject some kind of creativity into a project that didn't really interest me. And I worked so hard on this thing. And I remember one of the professors saying mine looked dirty because he didn't like the the smudge of the white. And they gave me a C just based off of that. And I was so wrecked and angry and despondent that I, I called home and I told my dad, like, I'm going to lose the scholarship because I can't stay in the school of architecture.
0: And how did he respond? What was his sense of what you could do instead?
1: At the time, Howard's tuition I think was ten thousand a year and now I think it's forty eight thousand. So it was like it was relative. He was disappointed, but he knew me. I was the youngest and I was always really headstrong. And I remember him being like, if you feel like this is what you need to do, like okay, but you're gonna go into education. Like he wanted to at least know that I could teach art and that I wasn't going to be a starving artist. That was his fear. And that came from his childhood, you know, literally starving.
0: Yeah. Um, I want to talk a bit more about your college experience and what happened, but I have a few more questions for you about your origin story and growing up in the family that you did. I know that you came from a family of people who knew how to sew your grandmother, your mother, and all six of her sisters knew how to sew.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, They weren't quilters. Uh, They sewed out of necessity to enhance their homes and their wardrobe Did you first learn how to sew as a little girl or was it something that came later?
1: I learned as a little girl. I remember my mother always having a sewing room. I don't know if you recall that like in the 70s, every woman had a sewing room in the house. Well, my
0: mom did because she was a seamstress. I grew up oh, as and she that. was making people's clothes for a living. Wow. She had ads in the Penny Saver and oh. people would come to our house and she'd do fittings and
2: that's awesome. Most of the
0: people that she ended up making clothes for were people that couldn't buy conventional clothes for any number of reasons. Yeah. Um so that's what I grew up with and she'd she'd make little drawings of each outfit afterward like fashion drawings. Right. And that's how I learned how to draw because I would make them with her.
1: Oh my gosh, I love that. Well, so, yeah, I guess similar to that, although my mother, she loved French fashion. We always had like Elle magazine, Marie Claire, but she grew up in Morocco. They all did. So we would have like the French Marie Claire and Vogue and we would see these Charles Jordan and Christian Dior dresses. And then she and her sisters would make them. So she'd be sewing and I wanted clothes for my Barbie. So that's how it started. I'd ask her, like, can you make this? For my Barbie. And I remember one day her sitting me down and being like, okay, no, you're going to learn how to sew this. Like, I'm not making all your dolls clothes. (laughs) I remember making a funky looking, funky as in bad, pair of wool pants for my Ken doll. (laughs) 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 They had, like, no elastic. They had, like, the whole stovepipe thing going. But I think, if I can recall, that was the first thing that I sewed.
0: I read that for your 20th birthday, you decided to sew a fitted ankle length sleeveless linen dress with a cowrie shell choker style collar and you designed the dress yourself and you sewed it without a pattern while away at school and you were so proud of the dress. You brought it to your grandmother's house to show it to her. Um, I was wondering if you could share with our listeners what happened next.
1: Oh, sure. Sure. First of all, I thought I was ready for like to be like an extra and living single or something (laughs) like that. Like I thought I was up there with with Queen Latifah and them. And so I made this dress and me and my boyfriend at the time, who's now he's my husband. We were going to Miami for like that was a big deal. It's my birthday. He was taking me to Miami. This was the first time I like went away with a boy. And I was sewing my grandma. I went over to my grandmother's house. I was home for the weekend from Howard. I remember her face when she looked at it. She was like, look at the seams. Like, look at the hem. How is that? Because instead of me sewing anything properly, like if it wasn't right, I would just fold it under and then sew across it like 17 times. So the hem was crazy. Nothing was cut on the bias. It was just... It was all kinds of wrong. But I figured... That's kind of come to Garcon, right? Right? <laughs> <laughs> I thought and it was So You know, linen stretches in strange ways when you sew it. I thought as long as I had it on, nobody was going to be looking all like at my hem or anything like that. And I spent the night over there that night. When I woke up the next morning, my grandmother had unstitched the entire dress and re-sewed it together the right way and she was I remember her saying you had sewn that thing over and over and I had to take all those stitches out so she was fussing but she could not let that dress go as it was and she knew that I was going to be wearing it on the trip too so she fixed it and I did get to wear that dress on my birthday
0: oh you're loved that's a wonderful (laughs) I love that story I love that story thank you when you were at Howard, when you made the decision to pursue fine art as opposed to architecture, um, one of your professors and also a dean at Harvard, Jeff Donaldson, uh, was also the founder of a movement called Afro-Cobra, which is the African commune of bad and relevant artists. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about the Afro-Cobra movement and what you learned from Jeff and your other professors? The
1: Afro Cobra movement started in the 1960s in Chicago, and so the dean of the school, Jeff Donaldson, he was straight out of Chicago. I think he was from Pine Bluffs, Arkansas, but he had went to the Art Institute, the School of the Art Institute. He and a whole bunch of bad and relevant artists formed Afro Cobra in Chicago, and so they they were just basically addressing the thing that here are these young college-educated artists. But there's no aesthetic for African American art, and there was the Harlem Renaissance artist, So I won't say that they came up with it. You know, they were learning from the Jacob Lawrence's, um, Aaron Douglas, Romare Bearden. Those men were still alive, you know, in the 60s and very, very much present. And a lot of them were professors at schools. John Biggers taught in Texas. Huge, huge influence on the black art scene. So those giants taught my professors. But it seemed like my professors were more like in your face, you know, like um, I'm I'm proud and I'm not backing down. Say it loud. I'm black and I'm proud where the African-American aesthetic in the 40s might have been like negritude. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So there was like this sort of a little more classy, refined thing. They wanted to go to Europe and to Paris to learn. And then they wanted to come set up their studios here in the 60s. They were like bump Paris. We don't want the European aesthetic at all. As a matter of fact, we're also going to support ordinary people. We want to talk about people living in the projects, people who can't pay for artwork, people who will never see Paris. So they went back and sort of took what they learned and then basically turned up the volume. And that volume you could see in the colors that they chose They chose what they call the Kool-Aid colors. And you think of Kool-Aid, right? It's a cheap drink. It's for mostly poor people. And so they wanted to sort of transform something that was looked at as negative and poor as something to be proud of. So that also spread into their artwork itself. They had a whole manifesto and it was like, Your artwork should educate your people. Your people should be proud. They should feel dignified. And so those were taken from the Harlem Renaissance era. And then they also were saying, like, we want to be cool about it. This is the African commune of bad and relevant artists. So we're coming, like, really young. We're coming really strong. We're kicking in the door and coming with our own philosophy. And by the time they ended up being my professors, they were my age now. They were in their 40s some of them were in their fifties and they were like adamant on impressing upon us in the nineties, that you have to take up this mantle. Our people are still struggling. And we see that, that we're still struggling. Now, you know, African-Americans are often miseducated in the American school system and they're not often taught about their history. So if you're an artist, you have an obligation to make your art accessible to the people. That means, like, make a mural or make, like, inexpensive posters. And when our people look at the artwork, they should always feel good about themselves. To counteract looking at the Brady Bunch, you know, and you're, you're not there. Or leave it to Beaver and you're not there. You know, or straight up Tarzan when you are there, but you're portrayed like a wild, ignorant savage. So this is your obligation when Black people look at your art is to refute all of the negativity that is being shoved in our faces by mass media.
0: One of the things that I was so fascinated by in researching the AfriCobra movement was the notion of painting on Black canvases instead of white canvases or using yellow to lighten a color palette as opposed to using white. Um, Can you talk about some of those very conscious and deliberate choices and what that meant or means? Sure.
1: I think at that time they were trying to almost be like, they wanted like all black, everything. So to be even as literal as saying you're having a black canvas. Now, what kind of paint are you going to paint on there that's going to be vibrant enough, that's going to have the same effect? How are you going to build depth out of this inky darkness? And that can also be understood, like myself as a dark-skinned woman, I would have been told, and I was told, especially in the 80s, don't wear red lipstick. You know, you're too dark for red lipstick. You never wear yellow because... It makes you look too dark. You know, you wanted to wear colors like I could wear like blue or purple. So I think that they were trying to reinvent what it is to paint in a black way, in an African-American way. And as far as saying like you cannot use white to lighten the skin. I mean, you can look at that aesthetically. Even European artists in the Beaux-Arts tradition, they follow that as well. Some, some. But by saying, like, if you add white when you're trying to lighten up a skin tone, the person looks unnatural. You know, we all have blood running beneath our skin. So what if you used the light pink instead? What if you used yellow? What if you used orange? You know, just just that idea that white is not going to work for us aesthetically. But they're also rejecting it like philosophically that we don't want to use white everything, anything. We want to use all black and all colors all the time.
0: Despite getting an, a fine arts degree in painting and graduating cum laude, I understand that you struggled to connect with painting at that time and to find your own voice. What, what do you think was happening at that time?
1: I think it just wasn't me. I, I thought, OK, I like art. I like to create. So I must want to be a painter. But, you know, when you're in high school, high school art class, you have a couple of painting assignments, but it's not like you spend half a year painting. So I had never been in a studio course before and I would like look to the left, you know, and look to the right. I remember there were these cool, cool ass kids who had their style already and were doing these funky things. And I wasn't. If the professor said, paint the person next to you, then that's exactly what I did. I was very literal, and I wasn't able to just freestyle and go off in these tangents. I remember one time our professor had a model. She sat in the middle of the room. And I, I forget how she posed, but, you know, some kind of basic pose. She sat on a chair and was leaning in her hand. And so I painted her just like that. And then at the end of the class, it's a three-hour class. You turn your canvas around. My friend who was sitting next to me, she had put, like, little bantu knots in the model's hair. She had all these colors like popping out and around her. And I think that was a, one of the pivotal moments where I was just like, I don't have this. What she's doing, I'm not doing. And I, my professor, Al Smith, he was really kind and I expressed to him, I was like, I just, I'm not getting there and he understood that. And he said, okay, I'm gonna come to your studio. Where do you work? And I said, well, I work in the dining room. At this house that I lived in in D.C. with all my friends, we had about like seven kids living in this house and Al came over one day and my friends are there like some of them were smokers. I mean, like not cigarette smokers. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Some had like incense going. The hip hop music was it was just very 90s, like whatever you can imagine. They're walking in and out and I'm working and I had on these funky lace pants and combat boots and I was like, why don't you use the parts of you in your artwork? Look at these funky clothes that you're wearing. Look at your friends. Like, you should be portraying them. They're all, like, super gorgeous. We're all in our 20s, skin glowing, all vegetarian. So we were, like, peak glow, peak healthiness. And he told me to look at the work of Romero Bearden study what he did with collage, and use my fabrics in my artwork. And he gave me an assignment. He said, I want you to do a piece, and I I just want you to use fabric, and I want to see what you come up with. So I I went to the fabric store, and I bought orange and yellow velvet, red satin, silk satin. I bought pink lace. All this was pretty garish, but I put together this face. It was um it looked kinda like African sculpture because every feature was made out of a different piece of fabric. And I was embarrassed to show out. At the end of class he he called everybody around and he said, Visa, let's see what you did. And I pulled that thing out and he loved it. It's pretty bad. Like I still have it. But I remember his reaction. He was like, yes, yes, this is what I'm talking about. Like, all right. Like all his, you know, 1960s slang all came out. I felt like, okay, I liked this. I like walking between those fabric aisles. I feel at home with this. So I felt like he had given me something really special at that moment.
0: At that point, you were still incorporating fabric into painting, though. Is that correct?
1: Uh, yeah. And that was, see, Al, he was the outlier. He actually, I don't think he was in Cobra, And it did, now it was senior year. And I had to come up with, like, my senior thesis. And, my, and I was going to have my senior studio review. And I can't remember how many pieces. But let's say we had to have 10 to 15 pieces of artwork. And I knew that I had to have some paint on there. Because it was a painting degree. And there was mixed media, but that wasn't what my degree was in. And I didn't want to have to start that thing all over again. So I was gluing on a canvas and on board. I was painting and then adding fabric pieces, collaging them on. They almost weren't going to graduate me because one of my professors was like, I don't know what this is. You're supposed to be a painter and this ain't paint. And then Al Smith, and I think there were two or three who were on my side, he was like, she is painting. She's painting with fabric. And then it got so bad that in that review, they usually tell you right then, you know, you got a, I think the top score was say a five, right? Like an AP test. You got a five or you got a four, you got a three. They tell me I need to leave and go home because they have to deliberate on this much longer and they'll call me later in the evening. And, I also was five months pregnant at this time (laughs) with my daughter, who is now 24. I was just like, you know what? I'm not going to be back in September. I'm going to be a mom with a newborn. I'm 20 years old, so I'm not going to be back anytime soon. And I went home, back to my house with all my friends. And I did get a call later, and they told me that I would graduate. But I just remember even getting that call, I didn't feel a tremendous sense of relief. I was just like, oh, whatever.
0: Mm. But they regret that now. Who knows? I guess. (laughs) Because you were five months pregnant with your first daughter, at that time, you found yourself overcome with unbearable nausea at the smell of paint. How were you imagining your future not necessarily ever being able to paint again without getting nauseous, without being sick?
1: I was so into trying to be a good mother because I was so young and I graduated, I think, May 15th. And then me and my husband got married May 20th. So my whole mind was on, I'm going to be a mother and I'm going to be a wife. And the smell of of oil paint is so strong. You know, you have to clean your brushes with turpentine, using paint thinner to thin out your paint. Everything is, is toxic. The paints themselves, like the names of them, like, salo green and um, cadmium yellow like all that they're seriously toxic chemicals in the paint and i was reacting to it like even opening up a cap would send me like retching so it was very hard to finish those last paintings so it was emotionally i was done with it and physically i just couldn't manage it and then after having that bad experience i remember thinking i don't care if i ever paint again I guess I won't be an artist. I can design clothes. So I was making clothing and sewing while I was pregnant, but I'd really just kind of given up on the idea that I would have a career as an artist. And then I thought, well, I could focus on teaching. And so that's what I did. You know, I eventually after my daughter was a little bit older, I went to grad school and I started teaching art.
0: Yeah, you earned a master's degree in art education at Montclair State University. But it wasn't until you were studying for your master's degree in education that you finally made your first quilt. What motivated that? And what was the topic matter?
1: That first quilt in grad school was actually, what I loved about Montclair State was, even though I was graduating with a master's in teaching, they had prerequisites. like you. Um, we had to take jewelry making, which we didn't have at Howard. And then we also had to take fibers. And I would say that I felt like Howard didn't want those crafts courses because they wanted this African-American aesthetic. But it was also this feeling like we want to get away from stereotypical old time Negro crafts, if I'll say that. So I think that they felt like fibers, quilting, basket making, knitting was something that people did on plantations or something that people did down south. That was an uneducated thing to do. So I think they had this a little bit of an inferiority complex that didn't exist when I went to Montclair State, a primarily white college. The fibers program at Montclair State was heavily run by women, white women. And so the women's movement has a whole different different categories and different hang ups and different things that they were pushing. And so they were saying, like, we're embracing women's art, women's work this craft work was revered. And so they had pushed it that every art student, even if for art education, art history, had to take fibers. And thank God my professor at the time, um, Ker Grabowski, was uh, somebody who was very heavily into the craft circuit. I think she spent six months out of the year traveling, doing craft fairs. And she wanted us to sort of dabble in all of the major fiber. We did like surface design, We did weaving, we did felting, which I had never done. I Mm. thought it was so much fun.
0: Have you ever felt it? Yes, I love felt. I do actually have done quite a bit of art with felt, felt letters. Oh,
1: how did I not know that? Oh, it's
0: because, yeah, it's just not even in the realm of what you do. It's it's fun.
1: Isn't it the feel of that wet wool? It connects. There's something that is happening that I think is is going all the way back to, you know, when we were just humans and trying to make our very first cloths. Yes. And she had an assignment for us. She said, you can make a quilt. It can be out of squares and geometric design, or you can make like a landscape, or you can make a still life. I don't think she said portrait. She said you could do a still life. So I made like a little oven mitt sized piece of a corner of the classroom. And there was stuff in there that we used in fiber. So it looked kind of domestic, like there was a blender. And I suppose maybe somebody was blending. I don't know if we blended inks or however it was. But I did that. And then I was like, okay, so I can make pictures of realistic things with fabric. I want to do for the final project, my grandmother's portrait. My grandmother's health was failing. And she didn't want to get a kidney transplant. She wasn't going to do dialysis. She was like, I'm not doing any of those things so she was getting very ill and i was painting her on the weekends and then when i finished painting her she hated that painting and Is this I, the same <laughs>
0: grandmother that re-sewed your dress
1: yes <laughs> she my grandmother was she was raised with very high standards um she was a a new orleans belle you know she wasn't a creole she was a black woman from new orleans but she definitely, her ancestors were Creoles, and um, she hated the painting. She said, I made her look old. And so while that happened, I thought, okay, how about I make a quilted portrait of her for class? I can fulfill my assignment. I have my final project, and I've, I'm able to give something to my grandmother. So I used like all these fabrics that the teacher had donated she had some black fabric with purple flowers and my grandmother's name was Violet. So I thought, okay, this kind of looks like violets. Use some of that, use some lace. But while that was happening, I was um, coming up with my own aesthetic without realizing like, that I'm using pieces of fabric to describe her, not just because they're pretty. And that portrait, I still have it. and uh, My grandmother was so happy with it. She used to lay it. By this time she was bedridden, and so she would keep the quilt over her legs on the bed, but she had to still have the tissue paper over it. She was just, like, really sweet. And and um, it was special because she loved it. And, and how I portrayed her was her wedding photo. So she was happy with the way she looked. And I should have realized that, too. Like, who wants a portrait done of them while you're literally dying? Like, that's not... I didn't connect that. I didn't understand that she still had her own vanity and was still a beautiful woman, and she saw herself not as the sickly elderly woman, and so creating that like helped me to understand her as a person finally. you know when people die and the pictures at the funeral are sometimes younger. Like once they die, they're ageless. Right. It's perfectly fine to have a picture of her at 20 or 30 or 40. And so I understood that of her before she passed, that that's how she saw herself and that's how she wanted to be seen. And I was glad that I was able to do that. And that sort of kicked off my entire second, you know, half of my life.
0: Sort of reminds me of Lee Krasner's response when she first saw Jackson Pollock's strip paintings and said that he had found his voice. Did you have wow. a sense of this being you know this moment, this big breakthrough at that time? yeah
1: I for sure every, well I showed my grandmother was so proud, and so she made anybody who came and visit her look at the piece. But my mom was one of ten, so I have a lot of aunts and uncles and so all of their responses were like, you did that? Wow. Like, they were really impressed. My professor and all my classmates were kind of like, you know, everybody else had a regular senior
0: project. Right.
1: (laughs) And when I busted that out, my professor, everybody was kind of like, okay, this girl is on the next level. Yeah. I think they could see it and I could feel it too. Like, this is special. Like, I, I got it. I finally got it.
0: Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. I love art. I love looking at art, collecting art, and showing it off in my home. And Framebridge helps me affordably custom frame all my art. FrameBridge has a curated selection of frame styles and design experts to make it fun and easy to choose the perfect frame for every piece. Their pricing is fair and transparent and is based upon the size of your piece, so you know exactly what you'll pay upfront. Ordering online is simple and convenient. You can choose to upload a digital photo for them to print and frame, or you can mail your piece with a secure prepaid packaging provided by Framebridge. And if you prefer to buy your frames in person, you can. Framebridge has stores in New York City, Boston, Philadelphia, DC, Maryland, Virginia, Chicago, and Atlanta. Visit a store and you can get one-on-one expert design advice and see their collection of frame styles in person. Visit framebridge.com or a retail store to custom frame just about anything. After getting your master's degree, you worked for more than a decade as a high school art teacher. You taught art for 13 years at the same high school you attended while you were growing up. By this point, you also had, you, you were married, you had two children. When were you able to create art?
1: Well, Well, actually, I taught for 10 years in the North Public Schools. Um, which is a um, more urban school district. Our kids there were really, I would say, a lot of their parents are going through economic hardship, or at least more than 50% of them. And then the last three years, I worked at my high school, where I went, Columbia High School in Maplewood, and um, Lauren Hill also graduated from that school. Siza went there. Um, Ibtihaj Mohammed, the silver medaling. Uh, African-American fencer went there. So that was so awesome to be able to come home again. I was in the classroom where I was once a kid and my teacher, he had retired like maybe four years ahead before I got there. But it was just, it was a mind. It was like a real mind F as they say, when you suddenly are in the shoes that you were as a child and all throughout my time at the Newark Public Schools, I just had this idea that I would work full-time as a mom, full-time as a wife, full-time as a teacher, and I would give myself the weekends to make artwork. And I also got, I will say that the African-American community was, is so affirming. You know, all of the aunties gather, especially with quilts. As soon as you start making something You know, my friends would be like, that's really good. Can you make me one? Can you make me one for my daughter? And then my coworkers, um, I made quilts for, I think, like maybe half the faculty when I was in Newark. And then I would get invited to things. So my whole career sort of was like a word of mouth thing. Like, I know this lady who makes quilts. And then somebody would call me and say, I'd like to get an anniversary quilt done for my grandparents. Can you do that? And so I would end up having these little jobs and I'd be making quilts on the weekends and in the summertime. Thank God my husband was so helpful. You know, he would take the kids to the park when they were really small. And then I could like sew on the weekends because, you know, kids, they don't care if it's a weekend. Like it's
0: it's all about me all the time. But these but, these are more than quilts, Bisa. I mean, these are this is art. I mean, this is thousands of hours put into creating quilts with, I would imagine, minimally several thousand pieces of fabric. And that's quite a gift. (laughs) Thank you. I think
1: that my father always saying, you know, you should do your best. You should do your best thing. Made me, like that is part of my work ethic too. And then it's also that I knew these people. So if it didn't look right, I would be embarrassed. So I would work really hard and I have an older brother. Well, he passed now, but he was the hustler. Oh. And he decided that he was going to take one of my quilts and sell it downtown Newark. And I was livid. I remember him grabbing the quilt and he had it kind of rolled up under his arm and he was halfway out the door. And he was like, I could get a hundred dollars for this. I'll be back. And I was like, no, I want to have my artwork in galleries and museums. We were going at it. And he's like, you're not in a gallery museum. This was rolled up under your bed. And when I leave, it's going right back under there. (laughs) So, and he was
0: right. Well, hardly now your work is in museums and galleries. (laughs) Right.
1: But he forced me, he put the, my feet to the flame. Yeah. And he forced me like making these pieces for friends and family is one thing, but like exhibiting your artwork was a whole nother thing. So, My father was the president at Essex County College and they had a gallery. And I called up his um, head of programs, um, Charlotte, and I was like, Charlotte, can I have a show in the gallery? (laughs) But I did that really to to prove my brother wrong. Right. Not really because I thought that this show was going to be a big success. And Charlotte told me to come meet her. And I went downtown And went into the gallery. It was like after hours, maybe five or six. And my kids were small. They were running around in this empty gallery. And Charlotte was saying, this is the space. You know, you could have it. And then she said, but where's your art? What do you have? And I opened my purse. And I had this piece that I had done of my aunt. And I unfolded it. And I will never forget her face and her reaction. It was so good. She was just like. like, you had that in your bag. Like, she had never seen my artwork, didn't know what I was doing. And she was so thrilled and happy to see the piece. And then that gave her, like, this confidence. I think she just thought, I'm just being nice to the boss's daughter. And she's going to put up some little things here and it's not going to be anything. And after that, she was, like, a thousand percent behind me. And um, she's still like helpful in my life to this day. And I hung up, I think I hung maybe 20 pieces for the show and sold sold everything. Although I'm pretty sure half of the things were bought because I was the boss's daughter.
0: Well, I must be very happy now. <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> I think so. and I. But then half of the folks, I do recall like the feeling was genuine. They were happy to, to buy a piece.
0: At this point in your career, your quilts weren't life-size. Now they are. Um, What Mm -hmm. made you decide to feature the full body in life-size?
1: I started making my pieces bigger and full-bodied, I think, when I started working with Claire Oliver, the uh, Claire Oliver Gallery in New York. The great thing about Claire is that she actually comes over and sits with me in my studio, kind of like Al Smith. Well, I didn't even realize that until you asked that question and actually visits with me in the studio trying to get the vibe of what I'm doing. And when we first started talking, she saw my smaller pieces where they were all like about poster size. She asked me, if you were to be full time, what would you do? And I said, oh, I would definitely make pieces bigger Because I almost felt like the small pieces were, they represented the time that I could spend on them. I had a weekend and I would have an art exhibit, maybe let's say an art exhibit at a local church. So I needed to make the sizes that I could complete. And so even contemplating the idea of being full time meant that I could make things full size. And I did experiment with making things even really, really big, like let's say, a six foot tall piece that's only a person's head and shoulders. And I found that 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 size for me was too big. I I couldn't manipulate the pieces the way I wanted to. So then I scaled it back and I thought, okay, I'm going to try making images of my friend's children. And I really wanted to impress Claire with what I had come up with, right? Because she was thinking about signing me. So I asked my friends for, send me pictures of the kids. And I picked, I think about five, all the little girls were about five to eight. So I made these pieces. And then the next time that Claire came by, I had all these life-size pieces of these little girls. And I could tell she she was all in. I had hit the stride again, like, okay, I got it. You know, they need to be life-size. I don't need to make them gigantic, and I don't need to make them too small. For me, the smaller it is, the harder it is, actually.
0: Because you have to make those small stitches.
1: Right. The small stitches. I mean, an eye, if it has 20 pieces, but you're using an eight and a half size piece of paper, like what size is that eye? It's like microscopic yeah. cuts. So, and I also found like life size makes it like one to one. Like they're they feel more real to me, more present.
0: You also work from photographs and you often work from historical photographs. Talk about why you do that.
1: I love looking back. I've always been somebody who looks at the past and is interested in it. And the time that I spent with my grandmother, all her photos were black and white. And I loved hearing about my mother's life in Morocco and hanging out with uh, the princesses. My grandfather was a U.S. emissary, which is very like a Black man in the 50s taking his family to live in Africa was not really, it wasn't common, I'll say that. And because of that, they had a lot of access to all kinds of diplomats and royalty. And I loved hearing about the photos. And then my grandmother's People were the Creoles in New Orleans, and that was like you know early african american middle class free people in the time of slavery and after um a lot of them were mixed race people, and the Creoles had their own class. I did some research lately; I found that some of my ancestors were actually slave owning Creoles, which is just like what the hell you know that that's a whole nother ball but I grew up looking at photos of black people dressed very nicely, living middle-class lives, putting their best foot forward in photos. So I'm very interested in that. And I stayed, as I transitioned from working as a teacher and making quilts of my friends and family, I started thinking about what do I want to portray? And I started thinking about vintage photos and my extended African-American family, and then not just African-American, but the African diaspora, because I myself have roots in Ghana. So that's what I'm interested in now, working from vintage photos. And then that that query helped me stumble upon just like thousands of photos that are just unidentified in, in the databases, in the National Archives, in the Smithsonian Archives. It'll just say like, Negro ball player or Negro washerwoman, or Negro school children. So that became the thing that I was like, oh, this is not right. Because these photos, a lot of them are taken in the 40s and the 50s. Their families are still around. Even if the photo was dated 1890, the families are still around. But these photos are lost to them. And I start looking at a photo. Let's say I choose a subject, right? And I see a um, Negro washerwoman. I start looking at her. Now I'm doing it one to one, so she's life size. As I'm sketching it, I'm thinking, who is this woman? Who was her family? What was she really like? And so I'm trying my best to pull it out of the photo and give her back the identity that is there, but it's being ignored or being passed over.
0: Makes me think of the Susan Sontag quote A photograph furnishes evidence.
1: Yeah. I think about it personally, you know, if, if somehow like sometimes we throw away old photos, you've ever, you've had a relative who passed, you got to clean out their house. What if one of my photos were in there and it got put in the database, you know, Negro woman making art, no Negro woman sewing. How about that? How would I feel about that? Just being written off as basically nothing. You're almost like, the spectacle, or maybe we're almost back to the human zoos at that point. You know, I'm not a human being. And how I would want an artist to approach my photo 100 years from now.
0: How do you find and pick and use the fabric in your pieces?
1: Actually, I just went shopping today. (laughs) So that's a great question. But I finally started zeroing in on... What is, you know, my aesthetic? My mother and grandmother were dressmakers. So I use a lot of dressmakers fabric and I go to local fabric shops. And um, because I live so close to New York, you know, the garment district is just like my backyard. So I'm getting brocades and silk chiffons and um, silk damask. I can get all of the fine fabrics that I grew up using the scraps to make my Barbie dolls, fantastic clothing. And then I'm pulling in my father's side, which is African fabric. In Ghana, they're famous for making this fabric called kente, which is a heavy woven fabric. And the um, European businessmen back in the 1800s came through Africa and they, they saw the colors and the textures, but they were able to capitalize on that and make a cheaper fabric in a lighter fabric called uh, Dutch wax. I think they had Indian cotton and then European printers, and then it was sold to the continent. And it's been popular in Africa since probably before World War I. And I use a lot of that in my pieces because the African women, they don't just, let's say they make a fabric that has something that looks like, um, oh, there's one that it, it has this little wavy figurine on it. And then that, it goes to the marketplace, and the African women called that Big Lips. <laughs> and so that fabric is known as Big Lips. And I don't know if you wear that, if, if you have Big Lips, but it's like an affirmation. Even though that was not the original intention of the European printer, this is what it's called. And then these companies, like Vlisco is one of the big companies, I think they're the most well-known. They actually will go back and name that piece Big Lips um they have one fabric the print is called my mon marie et incompable or he's not well off <laughs> so, <laughs> i'm like why do they make this but i love i like, love
0: those names that's fantastic
1: when i put that on a piece remember i was talking about let's say i found a woman of a woman a washerwoman right maybe putting my husband is not capable it tells the story also that there's financial strain in her life so it's tongue-in-cheek and it's funny but the African women like when I exhibit my artwork they know that fabric and so they know what it means and so I feel like I'm communicating like a a coded message like the quilts were back in the day like I'm saying something
0: your use of portraiture is creating something truly new in the tradition of quilting. And you're now among a a very small group of Black artists, including Kehinde Wiley, Amy Sherald, who are evolving a technique historically reserved for European aristocrats to tell the story of contemporary Black identity. And the subjects in your portraits confront the viewer directly. They're not just life size. They're also looking directly at the viewer and you've stated that the portraits include clues of your subjects, inner thoughts and their heritage and their actual emotions and even their future. How do you discover this in the subjects that you choose or do you feel like you're helping to create their history?
1: Sometimes it can come from just close observation. You know, I might be working on a piece that might take me 400 hours. I have a piece that took me 1500 hours. So staring at anybody's photo that long, you do start to see certain things. I did a portrait of Frederick Douglass and obviously he's a known figure, right? And he's an, he's an orator statesman, um, uh, abolitionist, feminist, but When I was staring at his photo, I saw this dark mark in the corner of his left eye, right where like the tear duct is. And I was thinking, what's that? That's interesting. And then I went and I reread his autobiography and he mentions that he was once beat so bad that he almost lost sight in his left eye. So here I am looking at this photo and I'm seeing the evidence of the burst capillaries, you know, in his eye from wow. that beating. And it just made me see him as a human being, as like somebody who can feel pain, somebody who suffered and had these scars on him for the rest of his life. And and that goes not just for Frederick Douglass, but other people. There are those context clues. I almost feel like a detective or anthropologist because there may be only this one photo of this person. This photo was taken by... Documentary photographer, or it could have been taken in a photography studio. But the name is gone, the location is gone, uh, the family doesn't even know that this photo exists. What can I glean from observing it? Look at their clothes. Look at how they're dressed. Look at their nails. Look at their hair. And so I'm looking at these things, trying to figure out who are they really, and what can I add? I don't always. No, I had looked at a photo of a man. I just said Negro man, Mississippi, Delta. And he's leaning up against a storefront. Maybe he's waiting for a bus. His legs were crossed so elegantly. And I called that piece, I Am Not Your Negro, after James Baldwin's um, last, I think, manuscript.
0: Yes, and it's also quite a good documentary now.
1: Yes, yes, right. This man... I don't know his life story, but that just that elegant crossing of his legs like that made me think, I want to do a piece dedicated to all of those expatriates, all of those writers and philosophers and thinkers. And so while this man is not James Baldwin, there was something there in him, but there was a grace to him that you would not expect from a guy. I mean, he has holes in his pants. They're patched up. Um, His hat, he has like a boulder hat, straw boulder, it's ripped. But I didn't put any of those things in there. I chose this beautiful Dutch wax fabric with airplanes on it because I wanted to say, like, this man is going places and he's been to Paris. He's been to Lagos, And I gave him a fixed hat because I'm also thinking about him as a person who wants a portrait of himself with ripped up clothes you know, he wore those patch pants because that's all he had. But if he had a choice, what would he choose? And I'm sure it would not be to go with the patches.
0: The subjects in your art also stand in defiance against racial stereotypes. And you've stated this about what you want people to understand when they look at your work. And I'd like to read this quote because I think it's that meaningful. You write... I want them to learn something. If you're not black and young black boys on the street make you feel nervous, I hope that it clicks that this person is human. He has a soul. He has wants and dreams and wishes. I try to pull all that in the gaze itself and the pose so that people will be confronted with someone who is so human, you must see them as an equal. Bisa, as an interviewer, one could be tempted to ask you to help white people try to understand what they can do to better understand how to do this. But I am really loath to ask you to do our emotional labor. But I did want to share this quote in the hope that people might be able to just think about it deeply and learn from it. Thank
1: you. Thank you.
0: Pisa, you've also stated that you've never been drawn to artwork that provokes sympathy and makes you feel sorry for the subject. Are there pieces of art that you're referring to when when talking about that?
1: Um, I think that any piece of art, or any, and that goes for a dance, a manuscript, a book, piece of fiction, a poem. If you're depicting someone other than your own people, right? whether it be race or economic status or nationality, gender, sexuality, when you're an outsider looking in, you might have the tendency to sort of romanticize those others. And I think it's so important for us to speak from the inside. Tell You speak up, you tell the world who you are and what you are. So I'm sort of responding to many, many pieces of artwork that I've seen. You know, and I grew up in the 80s, so those, you know, those commercials, like, feed a child from Africa, and they would show a black child with, like, a fly on them. Although we're not feeding the children intellectually in this country, not the black ones or the white ones, by giving them a false education, sense of self. So it's just easy to look outside of yourself and say, I feel so sorry for you, but you're never looking inward, like, and so I think about my figures Um, Actually, before this quarantine happened, I used to always say, I want the figures to stare us in the eye and say, like, don't feel sorry for me because I might feel sorry for you. You don't know what family I have. I could have a stronger family bond, more love and more fulfillment in my life than you did and that you have now. And then it was just ironic that the quarantine hit and um, the COVID crisis. And I'm thinking they might literally the souls of these people just looking like, you don't know what's coming, but don't feel sorry for me. And this racial reckoning, you know, when I'm looking at photos from the 40s and 50s, or even the 60s for that matter, and thinking, oh, wow, they had it rough. Um, I think all of us, I hope, are sort of finally getting it. Like, no, we have it rough and get our shit together.
0: You have also used momentous events and people to create quilts that comment on history and the stories that we tell about it. And one of my favorite pieces of yours is called the Safety Patrol. It's just been acquired by the Art Institute of Chicago and will be in your upcoming solo exhibition beginning at the end of the year. And in the Safety Patrol, you play with artistic conventions and expectations. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the piece and why you chose this particular group of children and what they signify in the piece.
1: Well, that photo was taken by a man named Charles Harris in Pittsburgh. And this was taken right, I think, in 1949. So it was almost, you know, turn of, of a decade. And I was attracted to this image of this little boy taller than the other kids with this cap on his head. Like he was official. He has a safety patrol belt on and he's holding back all of his little classmates from crossing the street. And I think it's almost like six or seven of them. So that's what initially drew me in. Who is this little man child who is in so much charge of his peers? That's what I do though. I just collect interesting photos. And then at at the same time, uh, Trayvon Martin, had been killed gunned down on a yard in his father's neighborhood and it was this big debate going around um, between black and white people a lot of us saw things differently one of my daughter's friends told me I mean it's so obvious this obviously wasn't about race I mean right and I was just like oh my gosh we're like on different planets at this point And this particular woman, she was a white woman who she had adopted some black children, two black children. And I thought, oh, this is tragically wrong now because you don't understand that your children have a target on their backs, just like Trayvon. So I was just really, really upset. I was sitting down watching the news with my dad. I think we're watching CNN. And um, I was telling my father, like, how are the kids going to make it? How can they live like this, like like being thought of as less than human, that their lives don't matter, that any person in a car who proclaims themselves to be neighborhood watch can just kill them and not even be charged with a crime? Nothing. And my father would say, this is not your world for them. They will know what to do because they are growing up in this. And it's not our world anymore. It's theirs. So they are going to know how to handle this level of violence and racism. And it was. A, I felt like I was able to take a breath and be like, okay, this is true. They will adapt and they will develop methods to survive. And I thought about that photo that I had found of that little boy. And it reminded me of that saying, you know, it's a child who will lead them. So the adults, we can be confused and terrified, but they're ready. And I was compelled to portray each child and show that they're all individuals, right? The boy in the middle, his arms are spread out sort of like in in a protective manner, but it's also sort of sacrificial, like a crucifix, you know, he's sacrificing himself if a car comes by he'd be the one who would be hit because he's further out and he's holding the other children back and all of the fabric I chose on them I was trying to give them each a personality you know you look at their faces some are shy some are sweet some look look like little tricksters and the jokesters and I want people to see like each one of them are valuable each one of them are individuals
0: Bisa, there are entire lives projected into the faces of those people that mm. are, are in your piece. And I can't help but hope that the quilt can convey that all Black children need to be seen and respected and protected in looking at this work.
1: And, and one more thing I'll say that the boy in the front I put his safety patrol belt, I switched it out, and I used a piece of kente on there. And that's sort of a nod to my father in Ghana. Kente was used for royal people, wealthy people, high esteem. You only wore it on special occasions. So the way it goes across his body like that, I wanted to say, like, this little child is, has high honors, and he is somebody worthwhile.
0: There are entire universes in every quilt that you make. The last thing I want to ask you about is your big solo exhibit that is happening at the Institute of Chicago uh, later this year. I believe that it's work that is uh, moving from the Katona Museum. Um, Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's right. Uh, The Katona Museum and the Art Institute of Chicago are working in partnership to present my work from my very first piece I'm going to be showing my my piece that I made of my grandmother
0: oh good Um, and,
1: and then going all the way up to pieces that I just finished this past winter and it's about 25 pieces in the exhibit and you'll be able to see sort of that evolution of me doing just faces and then doing faces and torsos and family friends and you'll also see my style get more precise and even now through the quarantine working, I've gotten better in portraying uh, minute emotions and expressions, very subtle, and I'm I'm really excited about it.
0: I cannot wait to see it. Bisa, the writer Christina Navziger said this about your work. They're stoic, monumental, full of rich detail in both the expressiveness of the subject and the pulsating patterns. There are voices in the fabric and they will be heard. Oh, I love that. I want to thank you for sharing your voice and thank you for joining me today on Design Matters.
1: Thank you so much, Debbie. I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed listening to your podcast and I'm thrilled to finally be on here. Oh, thank
0: you. You can see Bisa Butler's work at her gallery's website, www.clareoliver.com, and on Instagram at Bisa Butler. Until October, you can see her solo exhibition of work at the Katona Museum of Art and beginning in November at the Art Institute of Chicago. This is the 16th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you
2: again soon. Debbie's new book, Why Design Matters, Conversations with the World's Most Creative People, is coming out in February of 2022. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. Interviews are usually recorded at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Wyland.